All right, so start off. My name's Tom. I'm here with Hidden Beats, and we are here with Hawksley Workman. If you want to give a little introduction about yourself. Hey, Tom. Well, I am just a guy, 25 years-ish in the Canadian music business, I guess, and traveling and touring internationally. Uh, released 18 records, I think. Um, you know, put out a children's book, may, wrote a musical, uh, working on a second musical, was in a band called Mounties. So it's just been a busy 25 years and there's no letting up, which is good because I'm, this is living the dream. This is the rock and roll dream. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's, uh, you've done quite a lot. So you got a lot, uh, a lot of different uh, things to, to have fun with. Yeah. It's, it, it has been pretty, uh, you know, I always, it's, is it luck or is it, you know, what is that, that thing about uh, you have to work hard to make your own luck. You know what it's about. It's, no, I've, I've had a really good, a good life so far. I've been a bit low lately. That's why I'm t I'm talking myself into believing that I'm, I'm a happy guy right now. It's I've uh, I'm just I've just been a bit bluesy. It might be the Christmas lead up. Usually I'm just flying, but I'm just maybe a little bit bluesy these days. Yeah, seasonal affective gets people a lot. I find right around now. It, yeah, uh, totally. It's affecting my wife and you know everyone. So, but uh, so if you were to describe yourself, like your music, your brand, how how would you describe yourself to to a new listener, for instance? Well, I'm a pretty out there guy, I guess. Like, if background music is your thing, then I'm not your thing. Um, I have made a lot of different sounding records. In the beginning, you know, I was kind of, when indie rock was sort of being defined, I, I feel like I was in the in those sort of stages where indie rock was this new thing or indie music was this new thing when independent artists were truly independent and making records in their basements uh, and putting them out on their own labels. Um, I've just been around. I've toured a lot. If if you're new to me, I would say there's a lot of music in there. There's some great songwriting. There's some good, innovative indie rock stuff. Um, it's I think it's all pretty interesting and pretty good. Um, but definitely, if background music is your thing, like if you're one of those Spotify people who just wants a playlist sort of artist, I'm definitely not that. I realize now in the 21st century, like I could have probably done a lot better business on, on the streaming services had I more fit into the background at a dinner party, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a place for that, for sure. It's that's just sort of how it, it sort of feels to me these days. So, but yeah, that's, I think that's how I would describe, but it's funny. Even you said brand, how old are you, Tom? I, I'm 37. Okay. So you're, are you a millennial? I guess you're a millennial. You're the. I'm at the tail end of that. I think or like right at the very back end. So I'm at, I like to consider myself the point in between where I'm the guy who still used to go play outside, but also <laughs> knows, knows all about the tech stuff too. So I can right. deal with all that stuff. So it's funny because I feel like back when I started out, the idea of, of describing my brand would have been like, you know, that would have been, whoa, geez, like I'm not selling. Like I come from the, the, the final era of like when we were very careful about are, am I selling out or not? And it's funny in intervening years, like just because the music business has gotten so difficult, like everybody knows that if your song ends up on a commercial or whatever, like you, you more or less had to do that in order to make it kind of work. And the idea of of an artist being a brand is a, is kind of a new concept. And I bet you it's something that I'm, I mean, I'm hip to now because I'm in the 21st century and I'm, it's a youth industry being, and, and you know, you're in a youth industry here being, you know, putting out a podcast and it's, um, I'm not afraid of that idea, like how I would describe my brand 
as my music. It's it's kind of the same thing, but definitely if you were thinking of like the hippie generation or the 60s, like the boomer generation, like they, they definitely would have they would have trembled a little bit with the idea that they were a brand, you know, because back in those days, like the whole idea that you'd be something that was exquisitely authentic, definitely not a brand, like that word would have been, that would have been a swear word back in the day. It's definitely not now. Um, do you agree? Yeah. I mean, it definitely, it, there, there was a kind of a, a shift at one point where all of a sudden it was like, now you have to, to look at a slightly bit different picture versus what it was back then. Yeah. It's, it really has changed quite a bit. And, you know, I feel like in the early days, I was one of these committed Luddites, somebody who was really, who, who celebrated the way we used to do things and, and, and was, um, was a bit disparaging about the future and the present really, and just how, where music was going. But in the last 10 years, I've really, just changed my tune a lot. It, it doesn't really behoove one to like resist the future. The future is going to come whether you like it or not. And I feel like no amount of me resisting for whatever the sake, and, and even that may have been quote unquote part of my brand back in the day that I was a guy who recorded on tape and did things the old fashioned way. But the future is interesting now. You, you almost have to like you have to get into it because it's coming no matter what and it'll trample you. You know, I think the older I get, the more I read history, the more I realize that history will provide comeuppance for everybody. Like it's going to trample over you. Like you're, you are simply a, a moment in time and there's a lot of humans on this planet and there'll be a lot more after me. And there was a lot more before me. So, you know, it, it's just, I've really changed my tuner about being open to things. When you say you were, open to technology. I've really been deep diving with this metaverse thing, this crypto thing. I don't know if, if that's kind of your, if you're, if you're going down those rabbit holes or not, but it feels like the internet was really disruptive to the music business. In fact, I feel like the music business was one of the first businesses that the internet really sort of just picked up and destroyed, you know? Yeah. And I feel like if there's anything, blockchain and NFT might be something that is one of the it, music might be the first thing to benefit from a new system of a more democratized, a more democratized digital universe. That's kind of what I'm believing, anyways. It seems like there is definitely a lot of push in that direction. Uh, like, look at Our Lady Peace, for instance. They just released a whole bunch of NFT, NFTs on their own, and they're really pushing things like that, saying that it's uh, it's a way to gap or merge the gap in between like artists and fan directly without a middleman involved. So there's a lot of extra things with that and crypto. I'm just kind of getting into now. I wish I got into a little earlier and make free. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> but there's definitely a lot of interesting things coming up that way for sure. Yeah. I feel like, you know, I've been saying to people because I started to get a little bit bummed out about the internet um, because it's created all of these commercial monopolies just out of thin air all of a sudden like the world is in competition with itself you know it used to be that maybe if you were a canadian citizen back in the 1960s like and you were looking for a job your competition was people within your town you know like if you were vying for a position at a uh, you know in, at a, a law firm or a or if you wanted to work at a garage or if you wanted to be somebody on a, a production line like but now everybody is against everybody because the world has been globalized so quickly. And I think that in t 
we're not going to be around to see this, but I imagine in a hundred years or so, there will be a lot of people studying what happened in the late 20th century, early 21st century to these sort of luckless people on the planet that had to suffer the birth of the internet because it, and I think we're handling it relatively well. I think, you know, you see our political divisiveness, you see sort of this hot energy between people. And, and I think that, you know, maybe humans weren't really ready to see into everybody's lives in the way that the internet has allowed us to. But I think there'll be people in 100 years looking back and saying those poor, poor, late 20th century, early, early 21st century people that had to suffer through this thing that came out of nowhere, like, like a like an asteroid, you know, like it really did hit the planet like an asteroid. And we dinosaurs are having to kind of conform to this brand new technology that's not just changing our lives a little bit. It's changing our lives completely. We, it's and it again, this is part of my like learning to love the future, learning to love what's coming as opposed to being so resistant to it. I mean, my, what you'd said about us growing up that we were you know, we were at the age where we still knew how to go outside and play. <laughs> yeah. um, like, I look at my childhood in the 80s, and it looked futuristic because the video games were pretty new. Um, you know, MTV, there was all kinds of stuff that felt like, man, we're living in the in the future. But my rec my feeling now is that my childhood in the early 1980s was probably a lot more like you know, what my parents grew up with in the late 1950s, early 1960s than any kid today who's growing up with the internet and with the metaverse and with um, playing, you know, whose online lives are so elaborate, you know? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, there's, you look at, there's been a few people saying things have changed so drastically from a hundred years ago. And we're thinking like, wow, look what they did back then. Just imagine in a hundred years from now, like yeah. you said, people are going to look back and be like, holy, how'd those guys handle all that stuff? <laughs> I think that I'm just starting to realize, I mean, I remember when my career started in 1999, 98, 99, um, it was a big deal. We got a, a website, a web domain address, the HoxleyWorkman.com. It cost me an arm and a leg to get a, somebody to build me a website. I didn't know anybody who had a website. It felt very exclusive, like, wow, like I've got a website. This is a big deal. When I go out in the road... I'd have web-based mail that I would try to pick up, dial up internet wherever I could go to sort of download my emails. But really, on a moment-to-moment -moment basis, the internet wasn't really a part of my life at all. It was a sort of a brief communications apparatus when I did get a chance to get some, some internet, some dial-up internet, which was really hard to get in Europe. Europe slowly adopted. They were more, they were, they were much slower in adopting internet. Like, the ubiquity of internet really happened in North America before, like you couldn't really catch free or easy internet in lots of parts of Europe. And then even I look back in all my travel years, you know, of, of having to find internet cafes through Australia, through wherever I was like, like, I think even that, and when I look at the music business and see the different epochs in technology, like, so there was, you know, Napster and iTunes, but, you know, they've all come and gone. I think we see with the streaming services, which have kind of like the uberification of music. Like, I, I think that we have to really look at these technologies as very temporary stopgaps. I don't think streaming is going to be around forever ever either. I really do think that what these young, brilliant mathematicians, geniuses, scientists, engineers are trying to figure out with blockchain and with sort of the next phase of the internet and internet 
finance is a way to get people paid and to um, democratize in a way how the internet is used and try and create a, a fair playing field. That's my sense anyways. And maybe I'm just sort of an old man who is, you know, you know, holding my heart and, and hoping, you know, with in vain that this has happened. But this is this is the sense I get. I feel like I think there's lots of dark stuff going on with technology in Silicon Valley and and just this push of the technology saves all. But I think there's a lot to be fascinated by. I mean, AI scares me scares me a lot. I think that I think it's a danger maybe we're not talking about as like we should, because I think that by the time AI is scary enough for us to be talking about, it might be too, <laughs> might be too, yeah. late, you know? Yeah, it definitely could be too late at that point. And, and you can see all the different types of pushback having like social media, for instance, it was such a big thing, but now everyone's looking at it, like how toxic it is and how, how horrible it is. And just pushing back at that, like the, the streaming service, like you said, I, I I'm kind of on the same wavelength that's not going to be around forever especially with things like nfts and blockchains because it allows for different avenues that are a little bit more i wouldn't maybe lucrative i guess in a sense for some people that you can actually make money off of it whereas spotify you make like a cent per stream or something like that <laughs> yeah I, i'm not even sure it's a cent but i but it must but i do think that there is exciting stuff ahead and i'm I've I've rejigged my entire being to sort of accommodate a new affection for what is possible with technology as opposed to just thinking it's all crazy, mad. It's not going anywhere. So um, you might as well see if there's something in it that is going to have a value to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, if you can absorb it somehow, try to make it happen now before it's too late. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So being, uh, you know, coming from a small town in Ontario, did you have lots of big dreams and stuff coming up as a kid? Like, did you expect to go into this avenue as a musician? Yeah, I mean, I did. I was, it's funny, I just did this thing with a children's choir last weekend and the choir director asked me to answer a few questions with the kids and the kids ranged in age. They were like grade ones up to grade eight and one of the older kids asked, well, about my career, when did I start? And I mean, I, my dad was a drummer and a music fan and bought a lot of records. And there was a lot of music being played in my house all the time. And um, by the time I was 10 years old, I was playing the drums, I was playing a bit of guitar, but music was just everything to me. And at 10 years old, I had a sense that this would be what I was gonna do. By the time I was going into grade seven, there was a concert band in my school and I practiced between grade six and grade seven, hours and hours and hours in preparation to pick up the drumsticks and be the drummer in the band. And it was that summer. So however old you are between grade six and seven, like 11 or something, I started to practice at least three hours a day, if not more. And I started to play more guitar and play more bass and play piano along with that. And I knew back then, this is what I was going to be doing. I was putting in the time knowing that I had to build up an excellence on these instruments and a, a level of professionalism. And I think the funny thing was, is growing up in the sticks, I didn't have city kids around me who were also doing music lessons and playing instruments. Like in my school, I was more or less an oddball um, 
there wasn't too, too many kids playing music. So I worked really, really hard. My heroes all existed on my dad's records. And the crazy thing was, is when I first did get an opportunity to play alongside city kids, as I got into high school, going to a couple of different music camps, I'd realized that I'd almost overshot them a little bit just because I just assumed that they must be as professional as the people on the records. Growing up in the country, it just I just assumed, well, I was going to be the one having to play catch up when I finally got to Toronto to start my career. And, and I was having all of these thoughts when I was really, really young. So, and when I said this last weekend in front of these kids that the the choir director thought i i think she she thought i was nuts like or or maybe fibbing but they, i really wasn't that that it was around 10 or 11 where i i just decided this is it and and really by the time i was in my mid-teens like i was teaching private lessons i wasn't really going to school very much i had almost put all of my eggs in that one basket from a pretty early age Okay. Now, how do you think your, like, your inspirations and stuff back then have helped you grow now? Is there any parallel to as they grow too, or? Well, I think that, um, I think I was, you know, again, to, to, to go back to the idea that we grew up knowing how to go outside and play. Like, I think a lot about the fact that our generation got a real shot at having our imagination develop for itself, you know? I think I, I, my career has been driven by a, my own vivid imagination, the, the kind of imagination that you could only have as a kid with a little bit of TV, a little bit of access to popular culture, pop music, but a lot of access to outside, a lot of access to just free play, um, innocence, the kind of stuff that the 1980s served up in abundance. Like mm -hmm. a lot of, uh, like our media back then, the stuff that was for our consumption was so imagination based, you know, whether it was Star Wars or Raiders of the Lost Ark. We had our boomer parents who were in the, the pop culture industries who were sort of feeding the zeitgeist with materials that were for us like it was so imaginative and wonderful i often say like i i am very nostalgic for the 1980s but the 1980s was a was a time and place where the music business in particular was still putting geniuses and virtuosos on mtv for my consumption at eight years old i was i was cognizant and a fan of Prince, Michael Jackson, Paul Simon, Eddie Van Halen, like the list goes on of true geniuses and true virtuosos. And I really think that as we went on in culture for the next couple of decades, the 90s, it started to dip off. And I think by the 2000s, you know, pop culture had changed shape quite a bit. And I think that the imagination aspect of what we were sort of given as just our broad strokes childhoods I think it changed in a way that, you know, again, I can sound like an old fart, but I really do look back at our childhood and think even the toys we were playing with, like, it was all very bespoke. It was all very handmade. You know, it was all very special, I think. Um, and, and I'm sure people growing up in the 50s would say, well, heck, it was even more handmade and more bespoke and more special. And that's probably true. But there was something about we could feel that our world was global. Like, the you know, Japan was a a burgeoning economy and we you know the 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 
the Japanese mindset and the, the Japanese mystique was a part of our culture too in the 1980s, whether it was Karate Kid or the, or the mere fact that any and all video games were the, were the, the brainchild of Japanese minds, you know? And I feel like we were just starting to understand that we lived on a planet with other unique cultures who were contributing somehow to this futuristic existence that we were all beginning to enjoy. And this to me was the 1980s. And I think this gorgeous blend of like, of, of, you know, mid-century, mid-20th century innocence with just a hint of that something was coming, something big was on the horizon, but we still had the freedom. We still had this innocence that was, um, I think, very unique to that time. And really, when I think about innocence, um, especially as it relates to just a childhood free of kind of what social pollution or, or or commercial pollution even like it's not like we weren't advertised to in the 1980s we absolutely were but things were just more gentle i think you know yeah well you get the occasional thing you know like a musician you know gets created cool and and they're they turn into the big genius but now everything's almost like a, a factory line that people are yeah. you know musicians are coming out every every 10 days there's someone new coming out for something different and it it makes it a little less uh like a little less valuable in a sense of you had something to hold on to more so back then i think you're right i mean again i don't want to be disparaging of anybody's cultural experience but i do think that things did feel a little more special um i th i think that it's I think every generation has aspects of their, um, you know, there's there's the difficult things and the easy things. I think that I look at, you know, I was watching, I, I follow on different Instagram accounts, you know, young musicians, these young virtuosos. We're talking 11, 10, 12-year-old kids who play four and five instruments at, a, at the level of a master. And I remember being able to, I remember seeing that a few, like, not a few, 15 years ago, I was walking around a um, sort of a music trade show and I saw this 10 year old kid playing the drums and this kid was unreal. And I thought there's only one way this kid could get this good was having access to YouTube and this basically a world of accessibility to see, well, how did they play that on the drums? And for, for me, you know, I would buy the occasional VHS cassette that was uh, an instructional video with a drum hero or a guitar hero. But for the most part, anybody who was getting good at music in the 1980s was having to listen and re-listen and re-listen again to, to records to try and understand what was going on in there. Like we were sort of stumbling in the dark. It was all, our ears were sort of directing us. We were getting the occasional visual cue. But I think nowadays, one of the interesting things and why I think there are so many young virtuosos is... If you want to know how to do anything, and this is one thing that I absolutely love, I love modernity for, and I love YouTube for, is what YouTube has taught me in the last 10 years. I mean, whether it's what I've been able to renovate around my house, what I have learned about um, this new metaverse and cryptocurrency space, what I've learned about history, you name it, whatever I find that I have, you know, any deep interest in, I can go heavily and there's a world of people out there who are seemingly happy to get in front of a camera and show some clown like me how to do it. Even, 
you know, even in the tech space here in my studio, you can see that I've got some old stuff and some new stuff that I'm using, but my video editing, all my audio editing, all the stuff, all my software platforms, all of that stuff. I mean, I am reaching for YouTube all the time. If it's like, well, I was just, I was just editing a video this morning and I couldn't figure out how to, how to kind of fade in a piece of audio that was connected to a video. And I knew, I mean, I remember doing it like a year ago or something, but I just couldn't remember. I knew it was a quick, a quick keystroke. And of course, within seconds, YouTube, there's 40 people there to say, this is exactly how you do it. And I'm back on, on track again, you know, like, so in some ways having information and skills that are just waiting for you, if, if you're somebody with any interest or curiosity, it's pretty, it's, I mean, if you're, how can that not be great? You know, how can hmm, you say yeah. that? No, no, that's terrible stuff. I mean, I have, uh, you know, it's, 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 there's never been a time to be like a jack of all trades and master of none. Like YouTube can really, it can point you in the right direction on a lot of things. And I think that that in and of itself, I, I am a sort of fanatical for YouTube. If I'm, if I'm being honest, you know, my wife likes to watch Netflix and, and I like to watch narrative television as well. But if I have my druthers, like if I'm up late at night and she's asleep, I'm probably watching something on YouTube about World War II or some, you know, you know, the discussion about aliens and other planets or just there's a wealth of discussion going on on the Internet. And of course, a lot of people think it's, there's there's a lot of dangerous stuff on the Internet and there might well be. Um, I, I think that like we've already talked about, there's. The internet has allowed us to become much more afraid of one another and much more afraid of what each other think and say. I think this is terrible and terribly dangerous. Um, it's allowed people to feel that they can, they found like the, the ability to sort of engage in this reckless tribalism. Like there's all kinds of parts of the internet that I think this is all unfortunate, but I think that there'll be a day when the internet is more normalized that humans might leave each other alone a little bit more, you know, right now yeah. we're running wild with this. I think it comes in waves. Like if you look at the way pop culture comes around every so often, I think that's going to happen with the internet. Also, you're starting to see cancel culture being the biggest thing in mm. the world on social media. You're starting to see a lot of people push back and say like enough of that. Why, why try to ruin someone's life on the internet? And right. And I think that's how it's, it's going to be the same thing as pop culture. You're going to start to see waves come. It'll transition into people not caring as much. And then, you know, 10 years later, you might start to see that wave turn again, or people start to get a little bit more. I mean, I don't want to say touchy, but that's pretty much kind of what it is. Some people get really uptight about some things that someone said 10 years ago and people are different. Like people change. So <laughs> I, I know it is I, I frankly i'm terrified by it i i mm. i i and 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 even disgusted a bit like that that but i also you know i've been talking a lot lately about i i don't know if what your childhood was like or when you went to school if you still said the lord's prayer but like you know my parents weren't devout Christians by any stretch, but <clears throat> we went to church, I think, just because that's what you sort of did. And this was the early 80s. And and I heard stories about, you know, you know, if you're going to 
judge the the guy with a speck in his eye, you have to see that you have a log in your own eye. There's that one, or is the other one about? I think Jesus says something about, uh, um, you know, let he who has no sin among him cast the first stone. Like it's like little little blurbs like this that I grew up with as a kid. When I see what's happening on the internet, I think, are all of you people really ready to cast the first stone here? You you're all pure in heart and spirit, and you know better than absolutely everybody else. I mean, I just come from a different time when I was infused with a different sense of moral regulation. And I, I, I know that I'm an expert at my job and, you know, and that's about it. I think for the most part, I'm a student of this life and I don't think that all the time that I have the answers, but man, the internet is full of people who think they know best. And I find that disconcerting. Very much so. And, and it breeds on the internet, you you're faceless in a sense where you can say whatever you want, but it's starting to breed that into uh, like the youth now for like, so I worked a concert last night with a hip hop artist and the hip hop community here in Ottawa is interesting to say the least. And it was an all ages show. We had a bunch of people out there. There was a bunch of photographers and that's mainly what I do. I'm a concert photographer by, by trade and I get out there to do that stuff. But I also help the promoter manage the show because like, as you can see, I'm a big guy. I'm kind of intimidating and he needs an extra body around sometimes. So I, (laughs) I typically manage the front of the stage. I had one, one young guy last night, we had something like 16 photographers in this venue that was 400 people max. So it didn't really work out well. And I said, listen, you can't get in the pit. You can stay on the sides. He decided to get bold and cross the stage and right up there. So when I dragged him off, he actually looked me in the face and started to cuss me out. And it's like, who, like you're a hundred pounds compared to my 300 pounds. You really want to start thinking you can say anything to someone. People don't have that, that wherewithal to be like, Hey, I might not want to do this. I might not want to talk to somebody right. like that. Yeah. You might be onto something. There might be um, a diminished sense of consequence. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like if your life is lived on the internet and you can like, you know, dunk on somebody on Twitter and be more or less be out the door. I mean, the, the very few times that I have been confronted on Twitter, like I find it heartbreaking. I, I just don't, I'm not confrontational. So like anybody who kind of moves into my Twitter space and like, oh, and, and I don't know, I can't even bring up a, a situation because they, they happen so infrequently. But when they do, it's like, man, like I am so put off by this situation. A, um, you know, I, I feel like if I've really truly offended you, like I am honestly, uh, I feel, I feel that like, and I think people are very quick to feel offense, offense now. So, you know, it's, we're living even in a different universe on that front that it's, again, I think the structure of, of how we interact with one another is the parameters are so bizarre that somebody like me who comes from a time where there was just a lot more measurement in this thing. And, and again, too, like, I'm about as old as dirt as to, to most of these kids. And, you know, anybody born in the 2000s, their reality has been shaped by a digital universe, um, a hysterical media system, um, a lot of irresponsibility on every front. I, 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 I just, 
Well, even when I go back to think about like what I was saying earlier about these boomers who are, you know, making movies like E.T. and uh, and the Goonies for us in the 1980s, like I feel like wrapped in that was boomers making or at least green lighting ideas for films and television that were infused with a lot of imagination, but still there was a lot of responsibility in the narrative approach. Like, I just don't think we were handed like irrational violence, irrational, like any hatefulness. Like, I think that there was a lot of balance contained within just a lot of fun narrative storytelling that I, I, kids who have been born into the 21st century have been born into a vastly different time in social regulating and yeah, I mean, I certainly don't envy that. I, I really don't envy that. Yeah, my I have a 13-year-old niece, and she's experiencing a lot of that stuff now. And I look like, like how how can I help you with that? I don't understand it even at this point. Right. It's, it's too much. There's lots, <laughs> too much going on. <laughs> it is too much. I feel old, and it's, like, I'm not even that old, but it makes me feel <laughs> old just looking at some of it sometimes and just the way things are being done. And I have to try to explain to her, like, you don't need to do this or you, you don't need yeah. to think this way. Like we never thought this way and we turned out just fine. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. yeah so we kind of went down a, a rabbit hole there. I mean, we, we are here to talk a bit more about your music, so we should jump over to, to yeah, that we topic. can, or we don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the agency there would like me definitely to talk to you about your, your indie rock Christmas. At least. Ah, yes. I love Indie Rock Christmas. Well, you know, so several, like I say several, like 20, 20 some odd years ago, I was living in Paris, France, and I wrote a Christmas record because I had some time on my hands and I was, um, I was trying not to eat because I was getting my picture taken a lot and I wanted to be the skinny, dangerous rock star. And so in order to avoid being out on the streets of Paris and eating baguette and what have you, I... I put a piano in the apartment I had and I wrote this Christmas record. It was sort of early November, I think, or late October. And and that record sort of took on a life of its own. And so, you know, every year since I've I've kind of done Christmas tours that have related to that record. And I'm not in any way trying to become the Christmas guy, but this year I, so I've moved to a new town, Peterborough, so I'm not that far down Highway 7 from you. And um, I've met the young, local, cool, hip music kids. And I'm like the weird like guy that used to be famous or something like uh, to these young people. And like I started like a more or less like a writing camp out of this studio where you see me right now. And I had a lot of young people coming in through the summer. And we were working every day of the week pretty much and I had a couple people that were very dedicated and in once or twice a week and so we were writing almost as an exercise and then September rolled around and I remember breaking it to the, the one guy who's one of my main writing partners Brandon who I wrote Indie Rock Christmas with I, and I said this in early September I was like well we got to write some Christmas songs he's like whoa <laughs> I don't, I don't want to write any Christmas songs I'm like well we're writing Christmas songs we're in my house so so, you know, I feel like I've in a not that I've moved into a mentorship role because I'm I'm learning so much from these younger people like but that's how it kind of started and so I I went through a couple of weeks of writing Christmas songs with all these 
young, hip, cool kids who are like rolling their eyes the whole time. But I think this indie rock Christmas tune kind of came out and was like, it tickled me in the right way. The other thing is that like, there's nobody snobbier than like indie rock hipsters, you know, like there's nobody who like has looks down their nose at everything else and they're they know coffee and they know food and they know everything more than everybody else and there's that great like how many hipsters does it take to screw in a light bulb oh it's a it's a very rare number you've probably never heard of it um you know it's uh yeah so i thought after 2 years of pandemic why don't i write a ridiculous indie rock christmas song that like beckons to us old indie rock hipsters and says like i think it's time to like lower the guard like after two years of being indoors and not able to go to concerts and really not able to do much like could we not have a little bit of fun this christmas (laughs) so anyway so that's all it was and and so brandon and i sat he kind of wrote that 1980s uh baseline riff and i kind of put together this like i wanted it to sound like a bit like the Ramones or something. And so that's how the track happened. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of been well-received, I must admit. And it's Mm. been fun to put something sort of ridiculous out in the world. I mean, there's so much bad Christmas music. I know that. And the world needs another Christmas song. Like it needs a hole in the head. I bring up the, the record I wrote when I was in Paris only because it's, I feel like it bought me a bit of space to write a couple of silly Christmas songs because it is such a, earnest, authentic, you know, warm kind of Christmas album. And I was like, you know what? It's, it, I've, I think I bought myself at least two cheesy Christmas songs if I want to write them. I've got the cards. I can spend them as I want. So I think that's that's what I'll say about Indie Rock Christmas. Well, yeah, and it's it's nice. It has like a nostalgic feel to it. It has, you know, those, like you said, the the 1980s bass line and stuff like that. It, it, it speaks to someone like me a little bit more too because I enjoy that type of stuff. Yeah, that's instead cool. Standard, hear it. Yeah, instead of your standard, you know, Christmas carol or whatever, that it's nice to hear something different like that. Well, that's good to hear. I hope I I hope that it it gets played a bunch. You know, I I also built a a two hour indie rock Christmas special that is being serviced to radio stations across Canada, and I think there's actually a few coming on board to play that. So I'm even playing radio host a little bit this Christmas. So we'll see. There's lots going on, um, you know, musically. I'm off to Edmonton, Alberta in a few days because the Christmas record I was talking to you about, the one I wrote in Paris, is called Almost a Full Moon. It's being turned into a stage musical right now. And so there's sort of the first professional reading of it happening uh, two or three nights in Edmonton next week. And so I'm off to see that. It's going to be kind of exciting. I'm that age now where like I've written albums that are 20 some odd years old and, you know, parents have been playing them to their kids and it's pretty weird, you know, like in rock and roll, we all obsess about looking young and staying young. And, you know, those of us who came from the video era, you know, the whole idea that you looked good in the video was a big part of like your brand, as we were saying earlier, like, mm-hmm. You know, and I don't even know anymore if kids care what people look like in the band anymore. I mean, I think there's some fashionable aspects, but I mean, the idea that video killed the radio star, that was real shit back then. Like, you know, if you were, you know, if you weren't pretty, it was going to be a tougher road for you, you know, because mm-hmm. <laughs> like, we wanted to see a sexy, pretty so-and-so, male or female, on TV singing our favorite song. And before the 1980s, nobody cared, you know. Yeah, and and well, like I don't think 
people do care what you look like these days anymore. The some of the bands you see out there and stuff, uh, they're just casual. They're themselves. They're not trying to be an impressive force out there. They're they're more into the music and yeah, it's nice in a sense, but then it's it's different too. Like it has that different taste to it almost. Yeah. Do you know the band um, the War on Drugs? Yeah. I love those guys. And quite honestly, I didn't know what they looked like. And on one of my nightly YouTube dives, I stumble across some live footage of the war on drugs. And it's like, man, these guys are like, they're my age. <laughs> like, it's like, I don't know who I thought they were. I mean, they sound so young and cool. I know that they're like, you know, they're sort of, they're quoting the universes of Bruce, Bruce Springsteen and, and Fleetwood Mac and stuff. So I, I, it shouldn't be surprising that they're of my era. But case in point, I was like, man, these are just, some old dudes like me making music. I was like, man, maybe I don't need to worry about this whole like being video ready thing like I used to when I was a kid, you know? Like, again, it was such a big part of it. Um, and I really think that in some ways in the 90s, when the video really did take off as the way records got sold and music got sold and music got like popularized, I mean, think of the videos that you saw first that led you to the record. That's how we discovered a lot of music back then. I mean, I still think of, I had that moment that everybody had with Nirvana and Smells Like Teen Spirit. We had a much music video dance party at our high school and I walked in and it's literally the first thing I heard was Smells Like Teen Spirit. And you know, I was just a kid and I was like, oh my God, this changes everything. Like I knew it as soon as I saw it. Like I was like, this is it. Like, are you kidding me? How, what is mm -hmm. this, you know? And I think the power of those images with the music was what hit so hard in the 90s when we were like absorbing music through videos, like Losing My Religion or you, you name it. Those Like we saw the video almost before we heard the song and then we sort of worked back from there. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I, same way with me. I, I was watching, you know, much music and stuff like that all the time, MTV. And we actually did uh, a little re uh, tour with Ed the Sock with, uh, <laughs> with a lot of that. So we, I, that's how I experienced the same thing. I, you know, saw a music video, then cool. And I went and started looking at that artist more and then started digging into their music. And that's how I got a lot of my, my music tastes back in the late eighties, early nineties at that point. What a time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I, one of my writers wrote down a bunch of notes for me here i, I okay. mean i do a lot of different things so like i i run the company basically and i so i'm doing interviews and concerts and everything under the sun but i like to actually get on to do these do these interviews sometimes so i made sure she got me some extra notes here okay what do we got here so um she wrote down your, what is it? You had, you had an EP earlier this year, collaboration with Kevin Briet, I think his name oh, is. Kevin Bright, yeah, yeah. Right, yeah. Um, how was that experience working with him? It's a pretty solid jazz album, slightly different from what you're. Yeah, I mean, thank you. Uh, Kevin is a hero of mine. Kevin is one of the great guitar players in the world, like one of the great living guitar players. I've always idolized him. Um, I was in a band called Mounties, or I guess I am still in a band called Mounties, but when it was really active, I was playing drums, which is my first instrument, and we were touring. There was a time when I was a teenager where I was a really, really great drummer. And then, you know, my career takes over and I'm not playing much drums and years go by uh, and I'm 
you know, my drumming gets rusty. So then I'm out on the road with Mounties after we've made this great record and it, it gets really great reception and I'm touring and playing the drums two, three hours a night along with rehearsals and in the studio and my drum chops kind of get back on track. And so I'm at a festival with Kevin Bright and I jump on stage and ask the drummer, hey, can I sit in with this guy? Because like Kevin's one of these guitar players that is from outer space. Like he plays from such an elevated level that like I just wanted to feel like what it would feel like to play drums with a guy who is not connected to anything ordinary. Like he is extraordinary through and through. And um, and so after my Mounties experience, my drum chops were really tight. And I thought, if I'm ever going to do something with Kevin Bright, now's the time because I might not have my drum chops up to speed like this. And even though my drum chops were relatively up to speed, I mean, I was still playing at the very outer reaches of my abilities with Kevin because he is, I mean, there's just nobody really like him. So we made this record uh, a few years ago and it finally came out. Well, yeah, that was really fun. It's instrumental music. I mean, through the 90s, I paid attention to pop music, but was really, really focused on jazz fusion. And I was really, really dialed into jazz fusion drummers at the time, Dave Weckl and Vinnie Kalayuda and Steve Gadd and Dennis Chambers. And there was a whole community back then that that was sort of my focus. So I'd always sort of dreamed of being like the super drummer who puts out a record with a great guitar player. And like, it was kind of like just living out a fantasy, really. Kevin is also just one of the, he's one of the greatest humans I know, like being around him makes you want to be a better person. He's he's just a kind of an extraordinary figure. He's about 10 years older than me as well. And I feel like that's one thing maybe my life has been missing a little bit is like older mentors that I can kind of look to for, not even for like advice per se, but that I can look to because the music, the music game, it's a long game. And a guy like Kevin has stayed great all of these years and He's just somebody wonderful to be around. So yeah, Kevin Bright, the Bright Workman record. I I mean, it's a kooky listen. It's we're definitely not trying to be on your Spotify dinner playlist, but it's definitely music that if you're a music fan, you should check it out because it's really wild. Kevin created all kinds of horn arrangements. Um, uh, there's all kinds of wild wind instruments. Matt Brubeck plays cello. There's um, some incredible harmonica playing. It's it's out there. Yeah, I listened to I listened to a little bit of it just uh, to get more familiar and and picking out some of those pieces was kind of interesting to to hear. Oh, wicked, wicked! I, I'm a fan of all music as long as it's done well. Like I, I like a good song. If it's any sort of genre, if it's a good song that speaks to me, I'll be a fan of it. So when you when I hear something like that that's done really well and it has this really kind of uniqueness to it in the sense of something that you don't always hear, it, yeah. it kind of it sets a little harder with me. So I like stuff like awesome. that. Awesome. Awesome. Speaking about all the instruments that you play, do you find anything like you said, your chops were a bit uh, lackluster for the drums at first until that come back. Is there anything that's harder to keep up than others, even playing live for instance, too? It's a really great question. Cause it's, it's become my middle age crusade is that everything is harder to keep up now. Through the pandemic, I was playing guitar, an hour, two hours a day. Like I wanted to leave the pandemic a better guitar player than, than I went into the pandemic. Um, I've been weightlifting a lot lately and I've sort of, I've 
I didn't hurt my wrist, but I, I sort of strained my wrist and took, took two weeks off the guitar. And I feel like two years of practice, it feels like it's out the door. I know it's not out the door, but I will say that I, one of my songwriting heroes, Bruce Coburn, who's also renowned for being a, a phenomenal guitar player, I remember bumping into him at a festival, and I'll bet you he was in his mid or late 50s. And he had his, we were all staying in the same hotel at this festival, and he had his door just cracked open, and he was playing. And I just, oh, crazy, you're, you're, you're practicing. And he's like, oh, yeah, you have to practice, I have to practice every day now because everything just gets rusty. It gets rusty overnight. And I will say, when I was 20, I never thought about practicing. I always thought, oh, hand me an instrument, and I'll dazzle you right away. Now I know that if I'm playing shows, I've got to do vocal warm-ups at least starting three days before the show. I need to be practicing guitar every day. I need to be putting the hours in. Like nothing happens easily anymore. But that's just like I'm 46. So that's just midlife. Like it's like, and I don't imagine it's going to get any better. To be, you know, I think I think this is the reality. But it, it's a phenomenal question, honestly, because it, it's what I'm thinking about every day is how can I keep my skill level high as I move through this life? Like, it's a lot to maintain because um, I still want to be a great drummer. And I still want to be a great guitar player. And I still want to be a great singer. It's my job. It's it, That's what people want to see when they come see the show. So it's it requires daily attention now. It, ne- it never I never cared about it before. I Like, I'd come home off the road. And I'd put a guitar in a case and it wouldn't get taken out until I went back on the road again. And now I'm playing all the time. Just yeah, to I mean, keep up. Yeah, it's, I guess that's kind of in a lot of sense for a lot of different industries and similar. Like for me, video editing, I'm sure you probably have that too. All the new stuff that comes out, you have to learn new programs and new every, everything else too. Totally. I, I even find like if I'm spending a long time on Final Cut and then I move over to go back to Logic Audio for editing, like, some of my key commands, I'm like, whoa, what am I doing here? It's like, you know, it's just old dog, new trick stuff. It's like, I got to remember what my key commands are for logic. And then you go back to Final Cut. It's a whole different set of instincts. 100%. Like, and I think in this world of media now, like back in the 60s, you could be a pretty good guitar player and make a huge impact on the world. If you want a job in media now, and I, you know, I get people asking me, what should I tell my kid who's interested in music or interested in theater? What should they do? They should get good at as many things as they can right now. Like we're talking, put the hours in today, starting now, learn video editing, learn music production, learn instruments, sing well, find an instrument, an oddball instrument, not like, not the trumpet or saxophone is oddball, but it's fairly oddball now. Play something strange. Play it well. Because what I'm seeing, I was working at Stratford Festival. Uh, I was the, I created a soundtrack for a show a few years back, just before the pandemic. And they had people who like were acrobats and people who could like swing on ropes and stuff. But they needed, well, we need somebody who can swing on a rope, who can sing, who's also got acting chops. And I started to think, man, like, how can a kid be competitive right now? Like, because there's not as much money in anybody's creative industry as there used to be. And it means that everybody has to do everything fairly well, like at least at a professional level. 
Mm-hmm. Now, of course, software is there, and you know there are things that help us create better-looking video and better-sounding audio that weren't there only five or six years ago. Like the cameras I'm using to do this, like I, I built a Hoxley Night in Canada show, which is like I had a um, I had a cable access show when I was a teenager in in Huntsville, which is where I grew up, and like to think that for about eight thousand bucks, I have a camera switcher, three cameras, lights. And can put on a more or less similarly, like a similar professional level quality TV show from my house. But like that doesn't like, so the technological aspect of it is amazing. But what, (laughs) there used to be days where camera people, like being a a camera operator was a serious job. And that's all you had to do. You had to show up and Mm -hmm. operate a camera. Well, now you and I have to be camera operators. We have to have some sense of lighting. We have to have some sense of composition when we're building. You know, like it's, I think for anybody wanting to get into the, any media industry now, you really have to, it's not even jack of all trades, master of none. Like you have to be jack of all trades, master of all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you definitely have to have something under your belt that's going to put you above someone else. So yeah, that is very competitive. Mm -hmm. I'm lucky enough that, well, in Ottawa, for instance, everybody has a camera, they're doing everything, but I've been at it long enough where I'm known well enough. I can, I can get around that way, but I've also got a pretty solid team with me now. So so tell me about this. Tell me about your business and your team. I'm very curious. Like what, 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 what's, what's the whole scope of it? So the, the main business is uh, photo video for clients of any sort. So we do weddings and everything too, but okay. COVID kind of sucked a little bit and obviously no concerts and things like that. So we kind of turned into this, uh, this like vlog and interviews and stuff workspace, which has actually done pretty well as a whole, but now that concerts are coming up. So we have interviews with artists like yourself. Mm. We've also got the side of, concert photography and promotion and then videography for clients on top of that so it, it, it's very digital media based like we can accomplish pretty much anything and it's a lot to kind of manage at some points too with everything going on well congrats on the success that's great i mean i feel like right now there's still a lot of people with legacy thinking who are still you know people like you not people unlike you and i who didn't go out and buy cameras and lighting like who have to hire like there are still people that need others to do this stuff for them um who you know like it or not they haven't learned the new skills and thank goodness because really like this media universe for an old guy like me like you're 10 years younger i know even my wife who's five years younger than me is that much more native to all things internet and computer like she's she's 40 41 and i think like (laughs) the competitive aspect and even what we were saying like we live in a globalized world look at fiverr like like if you want a t-shirt design made or you want to find somebody who can like edit uh, edit a video like people there's a there's a world of people ready to with with like a professional skill level who are ready to undercut whoever is it's really oh, it yeah. is crazy really it's crazy and a bit sad really if i'm being honest like I, I, but you know reality being what it is it doesn't pay to like put your head in the sand and go i wish this would go away it is what it is you know oh yeah and, and adapting has been key like with with covid shutting everything down my main 
source of any sort of content, photos or videos. Nobody was doing anything. You weren't allowed to. Yeah, right. So then I had to shift into a different atmosphere. And I think it was actually like a month after COVID hit, I had uh, one of the PR companies we've done some stuff with send me an email and say, hey, do you want to interview this person? And we can put some content together. And I said, why not? Yeah. And then uh, it sparked it, it sparked a bit more kind of rollout with that. And this year alone, I think we have, we're, we're just about 120 interviews for this year. Oh man. Yeah. Ever- so it's, it's, it's pretty, pretty interesting that way. Do you have and an advertising all, component as well? Like is uh, there- not, not people- yet. Not yet. Okay. That's, that's something I need to work into. I would, I need to, that's another Avenue that I was never really like on top of. I never really thought about the online advertising and everything. So that's a new, new side of things for me. Crazy world. <laughs> I'm even putting out a, a clothing line next week too, so I can. Oh man, congrats! Do something else Crazy. with that. Trying to keep myself as busy as possible. That's for sure. Well, look, you have a limited time on this planet, and a limited time that you have access to your youthful vigor. Like, really, I feel like you have to push. If you're in the media or the entertainment business or the culture business of any kind, like it's an uphill climb, and you're gonna have to climb hard. And everybody's getting younger and hipper and cooler and and more and more adept at their skills. Like, there's really not much time to sit around. Like, especially if you're just licking your wounds, going, "Geez, it used to be so much easier. It used to be that." Like, I commend you for staying resilient because really, I, I in the pandemic, I saw a lot of folks in the in the music business like, "Oh, do I have to be an IT expert now too, as well as a musician?" It's like, like I don't know what to say, but you absolutely do like uh, this is a competitive industry just like any industry is competitive and it doesn't behoove anybody to sit and go well i wish it was the way it used to be i wish it was the way it used to be too i wish people still bought cds like i wish a lot of things about my industry that are no longer the reality and wishing doesn't make them come back you know you have to kind of get hip to it and you know it goes back to what we were saying earlier that i think that Streaming is just another temporary stop along the way to f- till we find a sort of a, a more egalitarian approach to how we buy, sell, trade music and communicate with uh, the communities of people that want to hear or see what we do. Mm-hmm. How did uh, how did COVID affect you with everything? Like, did you basically write a lot more and kind of perfect I things? I didn't write much. Um, like I said, I built... I built my little broadcast studio to make my TV show called Hoxie Night in Canada. I I practiced a lot. I got a lot healthier. I will say that I kicked uh, like I kicked drinking just before the pandemic, and then was able to like stay sober through the entire time. So I've been sober for over two years now. The pandemic allowed me to stay home and not be on the road, and I'm just lucky enough that. You know, I had the support and some money in the bank that, like, I was able to enjoy COVID in a way for what it was beyond what a terrible experience it's been for everybody and for me. I'm not I'm not saying that it was been wonderful. I'm just saying that I made lemonade out of it a little bit and was like, mm-hmm. I practiced a lot. I, um, I, I got myself a lot healthier. I played a lot of I played a lot of music. 
it, it wasn't it wasn't terrible for me if i'm being honest i mean i'm ready to get back to real life whatever that might be i'm not sure if i feel that there are a lot of folks who still are quite afraid about you know it's interesting you said you were doing a sh that you were at a show like i think people are still maybe nervous to come into rooms maybe not in the hip-hop community i think younger people are like hey whatever like let's just get back out there but you know my fans who are maybe a little bit older are probably just that little bit more cautious with like oh right like oh omicron or whatever maybe i will think twice about getting a concert ticket you know we'll see kind of thing and um i've lived a life of fear has made me do irrational things i've had an irrational amount of fear in my life and even that through the, the pandemic, through not drinking, it's allowed me to kind of reflect on that. And just, I, I don't really want to carry fear with me in the same way that fear has affected my life as an adult to this point. Like, I'm just not interested. It's, life is already pretty short. And mm -hmm. I've, I've messed around with a lot of fear. And I mean, not that I feel like I'm above this virus. I'm just saying that, I'm interested in living my life, you know? And I feel like some folks are like, well, I'm not gonna get back to living my life until this thing is definitely gone. And I don't think it's ever going away. So it might be time to figure out how to live because I think about that Gord Downey lyric, like this is, you know, no dress rehearsal. This is our life. Like the last two years of COVID has been, those are, I lived my 44 and 45 or 45 and 46. Like those aren't write off years for me. Like. They're every bit as, I've used them every bit as effectively as I've used any other year I've been alive, you know? And I wasn't going to just hang up the gloves and just wait this out. Like, absolutely not. Yeah, um, like same with, I, I got a little bit healthier, started to eat better, things like that. And I know there is a lot of people out there who are still sitting back and saying, hopefully this will end soon, but it it's not really, it's, it's going to be like a new flu. It's going to need a booster shot every year, like, that's just the way this is going with COVID and you'd be surprised actually. So we've actually put on several shows. We, uh, Kenny versus Spenny. We've done a few oh, yeah. of those concerts. Uh, we did Buck Cherry's tour here in Ottawa Crazy. and it's actually, there's a lot less people than you think probably hiding in their houses, waiting for things to come like Buck Cherry. We had, uh, I think the age range of anywhere from 20 to 60 all show up just to rock out and have a good time so it, it it was interesting for sure and and those guys too on stage they they were just excited to be there and you could see it in their faces playing things like that so it's nice to be able to get out and and do things finally and obviously you got to take the precautions and wear your masks yeah. and things like that and people just have to kind of wrap their heads around that a bit more i totally agree mm-hmm and it's, it's always like, I, I've been a fan of Buck Cherry for a while. So getting to hang out with them and two back-to-back -back shows in this small little kind of like a dive bar style venue. And that was a what good venue. Night. What venue in Ottawa? Uh, the Brass Monkey. Oh, I don't know the Brass Monkey. It's a, it's a small place. It actually, um, it used to be the Broken Q. I don't know if you know that. No, I, maybe I don't know the small, small clubs in Ottawa as well. Um, that's good to hear they're still out doing it and still alive. Like I, those, that, those guys, like, I just remember that love the cocaine song. I thought, maybe, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, maybe these guys, <laughs> maybe these guys are not going to be around very long, but old rockers, you got to love them. Like survivors, man, I'm telling you, it's a business. The, 
if you're a lifer, you know, you, you got to find, you got to reimagine yourself and redefine yourself, you know, every few years or even, you know, maybe even the gaps are not even that long. And it's great to hear that a rock band like that is still out doing it. Honestly, like Buck Cherry, I know that they're for real. They're like, they're grinders, you know, <laughs> like it's mm -hmm. good. Like that's, that's wicked that they're out playing two nights in Ottawa. I mean, on more power, more power to you for being out there. Do you work with Scallion? Who are you? Like Sean, are you out there? Like, who are you? I, I deal with Diamond Mind a lot. So okay, they, okay. they're the other kind of competition to, to Sean. Okay. Okay. Uh, and I think, I think actually I'm kind of blacklisted with Sean a little bit because I work with Diamond Mind since they're rivals. It's kind of uh, funny. Okay. So I guess it's but, a small town really, isn't it? Yeah. There's only, there's only two people here that are booking shows like at, at venues. Yeah. yeah right. So it's the two of them. And there's the odd person that tries to put on a show, but it's literally those two. Yeah, because you've got uh, Ottawa Blues does, you know, big and small shows outside of the festival. And the NAC does huge stuff, small stuff. Like, mm -hmm. there's a lot going on in Ottawa. It's a, it's, it's a city with, even though it's a sleepy town, it's not a sleepy town. Like, there is a lot to do in Ottawa. Yeah, if you know where to look, there's, there's definitely all totally. kinds of things to do. And like the Diamond Mine Agency there, they book across Canada too. So they actually did cool. the whole Bakhtiri tour. Okay. And I, think, and I think it was uh, 109 shows they did over that whole tour. It's back from, from one end to the other, back and forth in the U.S. and things like that. Holy. But yeah, those guys are still, they're still working hard for sure. Jeep. Were they on a tour bus? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they had the full bus. It was a good, it was a good time for sure. Right. <laughs> Do you have any interesting tour stories of your own? Like weird things that come to mind that you've experienced or uh, stuff I mean, that you, I, that you can mention, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, I've had lots of interesting tour stuff. I mean, I had an, I had a big hit song in France, which is why I was living in Paris. And for like a year and a half, I was like, kind of famous in France and got given all kinds of weird opportunities. And so like, I mean, I played Roman Coliseums one summer, one after another, I played the Nîmes Coliseum, which is a beautiful Roman Coliseum in the South of France with David Bowie. And I mean, there was some years where like some real rock star years and, you know, there was all the kind of shenanigans. We were always good people. Like, but we did a lot of drinking, of course. Um, and in France, it was very easy to drink. Like those festival years, we were waking up one o'clock in the afternoon on the bus and like, you know, sort of rise and shine to a bottle of rosé. And, you know, we didn't get crazy. You know, it's not like we were satanic or evil or, but we, we were wild for some years. I kept the wildness going in my way, which is why when I quit drinking, just before the pandemic, like it was time to stop, you know, mm -hmm. um, road life has a funny habit of like following you home. And it's like, oh, you know, I'm, you know, drinking a bottle of wine every night or more. And, oh man, when I get home, am I ever going to clean up? And of course you, you don't, <laughs> Yeah, you, you need that bottle of wine at night. It's like, oh my God. And then when I hit in my forties, I was like, this is, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, the road is great because it's a place that you just start to accumulate all kinds of stories because it's um, every day is an adventure. 
every day you're exposed to the world without any comfort, without your home, without your family, without any way to kind of keep yourself balanced. So you're in the world in a real kind of way. You know, I would say that I feel especially because most of my touring life now is in Canada, although I still typically was going to Europe once a year and Australia once a year. You know, I have a real connection to, like I'm a global citizen in that way where there's some cities and some places, and especially in Canada, like I sometimes wonder, like even, you know, even sitting cabinet ministers in, 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 in parliament in Canada, like, have they seen Canada as up close as I have, like east to west, north to south? Like I've been everywhere over the last 25 years. I've been to lots of towns several times. I've spent several days bordering on weeks, if not months, in, in some of the bigger cities in Canada. Like I, when, when, there's, when something has happened, like, oh, the Coquihalla Highway washes away or any of this stuff, when there's a problem in Canada or there's a boil water advisory in North Battleford, and I've, I've been to all these places. I've been to them several times. I've driven on those places. Like, and I think as a Canadian, I almost never hear something on the news that I can't conjure up an image in my mind of that I've actually been there, seen those people, know mm -hmm. what that place looks like, what it feels like. And that's, I think, a real, that's a real, that's a real takeaway for me. That's a real, like, I, I very, I, I honor that, that experience. And that's, that's hard earned. Like, that's on the ground. Those are miles in Canada, you know, of like, mm -hmm. of being places. This is a big country. And even in Australia, tour, touring musicians in Australia don't drive city to city. Like, it's a flying country. And yeah. so in, in Canada, like, we are on the ground. So if you've done a cross-Canada tour once, like, it's exhausting. And I've done a cross-Canada tour, I don't know, 20, 30 times. And then flying in and out of these places for festivals. Like, that is one thing I would say. The touring over these years um, has allowed me an understanding of people and maybe a, 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 an ability to reflect on even my own country in a way that lots of people who, you know, oh, you know, Alberta shouting at Quebec and Quebec shouting at Alberta. Well, I mean, I've been to both places. I lived in Montreal. I spend a ton of time in Alberta. Like I just, I can reconcile their differences because I can see what's special about them both, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I was actually born in Alberta and I've been across country a couple of times as a, uh as an army brat, bit, a bit of a different scenario, but I've got to see a lot and experience yeah. a lot of different things that way too. So it's different because you, you know, some of my friends haven't seen outside of Ontario. Yeah. And it's a different feeling for sure. hundred percent. And really why should anybody see outside Ontario? It's hard to get out of Ontario. Ontario is massive, but mm -hmm. like, I, I think the advantage when you is, is, is maybe a level of tolerance and understanding for the conversation that's going on in a complex Canada or in a complex country like Canada, because if you crossed this amount of actual physical space in Europe, you'd pass through two dozen countries where they speak four dozen languages. And yeah. like the complexity of Canada, when we are trying to always think as a, as a single unit, I mean, we are a spread out, nation of small city countries. I, I sometimes think that like 
I know how people in Edmonton think, and I know how people in Sault Ste. Marie think, and I know how people in Winnipeg think, and they don't think anything like the way people in Vancouver think. And even the people in Vancouver don't think the way people think in Campbell River, and people in Campbell River don't think like the people in Montreal. But meanwhile, we're all voting for the same prime minister. We're all voting and like compiling our interests contained within the understanding of this funny country that is massive and trying to arrive at some unified decision or understanding of itself. It's, it's pretty wild. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a, it's a big monster to think about when you, when you look at as a whole, for sure. Totally. One of the questions that uh, I like to ask uh, anyone I, I interview is, was there ever some advice that you were given coming up that's kind of held strong for you in, in the music industry or anything like that? I don't know. I've been wondering that lately. I feel like I wish somebody would have given me advice. I honestly can't think of advice. No, I, I feel like I wish along the way I would have had somebody older, a mentor helping to guide me. I will say that there was a time when after I had put out my record Lover, Lover Fighter where I was really going through a lot of emotional turmoil and a very famous music producer named Bob Ezrin sort of took me under his wing briefly and he gave me advice and some of it I listened to and some of it I didn't but you know he really took some time with me in the kind of way that he didn't need to and I often think about Bob reaching out to me I went out to dry out in the desert in California for five weeks and he sent me some books in, by Amazon, which I'd never heard of. It was absurd. Like I got like somebody delivered me books to my door and he's like, oh, this, I like, it's always oh, from Bob Ezra. And it's like, huh, that's crazy. And they were like, you know, the power of now and, you know, some spiritual sort of thinking books. And I, I you know, I was blessed that Bob kind of breezed through briefly in my life. If, when I think about advice, I really think he's kind of the, he's kind of the somebody that did sort of stop and, I mean, he even told me back then, like, you've got to stop drinking and you've got to, you should do this. And he was very absolute, but he'd lived a very absolute life and he'd had the biggest success anybody had ever had. And so, but that's really about it. When I think about advice, I could have used some more advice if I'm, if I'm being honest. What kind of advice might you give to somebody coming up at this point? Well, I'd give all kinds of advice because I'm a talker, you know, I, I couldn't say anything general other than like, you know, what I'd already just said to you about my feelings about what a competitive business it is and that you want to arm yourself with as many skills and be as authentically yourself as possible. And, you know, it's a very competitive business. And so, you know, I, I'll, I'll give that kind of advice all the time. I don't know specifically, you know, case to case, I have a hard time not being honest with young people these days. And so, I mean, I'll just say that, you know, there are days where I wouldn't wish this business on anybody. It's brutal and it's heartbreaking. But when when it's great, it is the greatest thing there ever could be, you know. So um, there's a Jay-Z lyric about, it's not the life that I chose, but the life that chose me. I do find I say to young people, like, especially people think, oh, I'm thinking about maybe doing music. Like, it wasn't a choice for me. And it, I think for the people who are lifers in the business, it wasn't a choice for them either. Like it was the, the job that chose them. And because there's so much heartbreak in the music business, like if you're going to suffer that heartbreak, you got to want it and love it in an abnormal 
and masochistic kind of way where like it is all you are it is all you want it is all that that you think about and to me it's like if you think you've dabbled in some music and maybe you want to get into music now like i'd seriously question that because it's a it's a horrible place <laughs> it's a horrible place I mean, I, I experience it on a on a different side from what you do, and I can I can see that also. Like, yeah. there's so many different things that that can make it a, a horrible place yeah. that you have to be aware of. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I I get that, and I'm not even a musician, so yeah, I can see that 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 makes sense. That would be it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one one thing, uh, my writer wanted to wanted me to ask so she went through your twitter for extra questions and content and and her exact comment here is i went through your twitter for extra questions but it's all animals like all of it (laughs) cats mostly clear clearly a big animal person do you have pets of your own yeah i've got two cats um miss and lola um i grew up with animals i grew up in the woods so animals were a big part of my life Uh, my i and practicing or attempting to practice radical positivity. Twitter is such a hate scape of awfulness that I purposely populate my Twitter with um, fascinating historical pictures of cities that I love, of animals, of just kooky stuff. Like my voice on Twitter is to not add noise to an already noisy conversation like i don't weigh in on anything political i don't say anything political um i keep my thoughts about certain things to myself my twitter is really just a place of joyful outlet where it's only positivity it's animals it's cats it's foxes it's yeah i you're not (laughs) i'm not going to say anything on twitter that's going to like well, even though with even though I do that, and I do sometimes, you know, people are like, "Hey, well, you shouldn't say that." And I'm like, "Oh, really? Like, oh my god, is this really mm-hmm. people really?" But <laughs> you know, so you can't please everybody. But Twitter, you know, no, Twitter, your your writer is right. It's a lot of animals, a lot of cats. Yeah, she she made sure to point that out, and and she wanted me to hundred <laughs> percent ask that. That's good. Um, so that's pretty much all I have here for you. Um, that's great. Do you have a, so one one thing we like to do too is do you have any uh, shout outs or something like a local business that you might want to give a little extra nod to or anything that kind of pops into your mind like that? I'm trying to think. Well, Dave's Drum Shop in Ottawa. I mean, if we're talking about local Ottawa businesses, Dave's Drum Shop is like is one of my favorite Instagram accounts, and Dave is running like a great business. It's I think it's hard to be like a drum seller these days but dave is like one of the real guys and i know he's got like an international reputation uh, i'm trying to think of who else in ottawa i mean i love jeremy fisher i love ken friesen there's some and love jim bryson and kathleen edwards you got a lot of great musicians in in ottawa um it i love have to be strictly ottawa too if you want to oh, show okay well I mean, I'm, I'm thinking because you're in ottawa it got me thinking about ottawa and i haven't even been to ottawa in two years so uh I think I'll just leave it at that. Okay. You made it an Ottawa-centric chat. No, that works. And I guess you're you're in the middle of kind of a a little tour going on right now too, eh? Well, it's going to start, yeah. December, to it, yeah. December 14th, Toronto Danforth Music Hall. December 22nd uh, in St. Catharines at Partridge Hall. 
and Archibald, okay. there might be another surprise thing coming, but I can't say anything about it. Okay, well, it gives someone to look forward to for sure. Yeah, man. I, I know, I know. My writer, her name's Beth. She wants to get out to one of your shows when she can, so that's going to be something we're going to try and get her to. Awesome. Oh, that'd be great. She's in, she's in Kingston, I think, right now. So. Oh, cool. We'll get her out to something. But yeah, I definitely I had a great time talking to you, and uh, you too. Congrats uh, on all your success and and all your enterprises. Well done. Thank you for the chat as well. Please, pa it's who, who is your writer again in Kingston? Her, her name is Beth. Pass on a hello to Beth. And next time we're anywhere near Eastern Ontario, or please tell Beth to come say hi. I will definitely do that. And I'll let her know that uh, her questions went over pretty well. Loved it. All right. So uh, we'll sign off and uh, sure. see you next time. Take care. Bye. Bye.